Uh, you can go ahead and turn to Second Timothy chapter four, uh, verses nine through twenty-two. Uh, so Second Timothy chapter four, verses nine through twenty-two, and um, it's kind of uh, interesting um, observation this morning that um, our worship team, as they were getting ready this morning, I mean, the, the common denominator is they're they're physically tired. Um, they, the, Tim and Lindsay put in a bunch of hours with the rodeo the last couple of days. Uh, but they're all they're 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 tired, and yet just the thought kind of hit me that you know out of out of empty vessels, sometimes those are, that's the best instrument of praise, isn't it? Uh, that when we when we don't have a whole lot to bring to the table physically, that um, man, uh, I could worship with y'all all day. Uh, it's fantastic. So thank you guys, um, and and to the church, just man, I don't know that if this isn't the highlight of your week, I don't I don't know. Maybe we'll redo it again afterwards. But um, this is a wonderful time of praise together. Uh, and if there's one overarching truth that that would be good to just stick in our hearts and to play over and over again uh, is that God is good, uh, and and you might find yourself just like humming that over and over again this week, and that's kind of by design. Like God is good, um, and and you likely face some things this week that might would tell you the opposite of that, and yet the the truth of who God is is He's good, uh, and and somehow even in our circumstances that truth remains that He is He's He's in control and He's good. Um, and, and it's kind of flowing into what we're looking at at Second Timothy chapter four verses nine through twenty-two today. And if you've turned there, you realize I just uh, pointed out to you we're finishing Second Timothy today, so we're wrapping it up. Uh, and and what we're looking at in these last thirteen verses is is similar to a lot of Paul's other letters, um, where there's a whole lot of names and there's a lot of like uh, greet this person, tell about this person, I've sent this person to this place and. And on cursory first view, we might go, I don't, I don't know what we're going to pull out of this. Um, but one of the questions uh, that I would, I would pose to you as, as Paul is encouraging Timothy to come see him soon. Paul knows he's, he's nearing the end of his life. He's urging Timothy to come see him in person. Um, but a question that, that hopefully uh, will set us all on the same page and something we can all agree on uh, in our lives. This question, has anyone... At any time in your life, has anyone ever disappointed you? Okay, so you're ready for today uh, because you go, you probably, something has popped in your mind. Oh, yeah, I remember when this person disappointed me or this person let me down. Uh, that's probably a universal truth of being human is that people will let you down. Um, and, and conversely, we just sang, and we'll look at it again the there's one who never lets us down. Uh, but Paul is going to be urging Timothy to come see him. And in this, uh, we will see that there are people who have let Paul down in a sense, uh, both in the past, in the present, and possibly in the future. Um, but if you're there in 2 Timothy chapter 4 with me, we're going to look at verses 9 through 22. In concluding the letter, he writes, Do your best to come to me soon. For Damus, in love with his present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone on to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. 
Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. My first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So in verse 9, uh, the, the, earlier in the letter, Paul said, I, I, I long to see you, right? And whenever I think about you, I'm, I'm moved to tears. I, I long to see you. And now he's telling Timothy, come soon. And that seems easy. Uh, have you ever told maybe a family member, hey, I, I could really use a visit right about now. You, you should come as quick as you can. Uh, maybe we think of those things a lot of times end of life, right? Come as quick as you can. You don't have much time. Uh, and, and Paul tells Timothy, come soon, which sounds like a simple thing, like you just pick up and go. But for Timothy, this is an eight, like it's a direct, direct path, 832 miles. That's direct path. Just to put that into perspective for you and for me, 844 direct miles from Libby. 844 direct miles from Libby is Las Vegas, Nevada. Although it takes 1,138 driving miles. So Paul says, come quick. In the first century where you don't have a car where you can drive it in a hard day. Or a day in a couple hours. That takes some intention to take a journey like that, doesn't it? That's, this, is like a, this is probably a weeks-long, at least, journey, if not months-long journey. It says, come soon. So you can imagine, it, it's already taken the letter, how long to get to Timothy? And now, hey, come quickly. And he see this later on in verse 21, when he says, do your best to come before winter. So do your best to come quickly, soon, and do your best to come before winter. You know, is that just a concern for Timothy? Like, Timothy has, like, kind of, he's prone to frostbite. Like, you know, kind of worried about Timothy. Timothy's a little fragile. Not so much. It's that Timothy is east, Paul is west, and boats don't go from east to west in the wintertime. Because the winds don't work that way. So if you go back into the book of Acts and you see when Paul was being taken from Jerusalem to Rome, they were like constantly being battered by the waves and like we should probably, and they end up wintering right on the island of Crete, Cyprus. Anyway, you can check that on me. Tell me as soon as we're done. Because somebody's going to go look at that. So the sailing conditions are horrible in the wintertime. So he's giving him some practical advice, but he's also, so we get the idea it's before winter, come quick. Because if you don't come before winter, it's a whole nother season, right? You're waiting. And Paul, again, has just told us at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Like, we are running out of time. Timothy, 
You also see some practical concerns. He says you're, you're going to come by way of Troas. So if, if you're a Bible map person, uh, if that's one of the most uh, the highlights of your day, if you go to the end of your Bible, there's usually a map that says Paul's missionary journeys. And you can, you can find Ephesus on there. And if you travel up the coast there in Turkey, you see Troas is another port city. So he's telling him, I want you to swing this direction. It might be the way that Timothy would have gone anyway. Uh, but he says, I want you to pick up a, a coat and some books for me. Some practical concerns. Um, and again, winter is coming. The prison that Paul is in is in Rome. It's, uh, have been there. It's a horrible place. Even, I went in the middle of summer. We're in Italy. Hot and humid. But it's hewed out of rock. It's a hole in the ground. And you go in, and in the summertime, it's cold and it's damp. So you can imagine Paul saying, winter is coming. Bring that heavy cloak I left with carpus at Troas. That's going to be helpful to me. And then also bring my books, my parchments. And what Paul is kind of saying there is, his, even though his time is coming, Paul doesn't see his work as being done yet. So as long as Paul is drawing breath, there's work to be done. So he's giving him some practical concerns. Go this way. Do this. Uh, the time is coming close. It's not just... For personal comfort, I think that Timothy is coming to him. He's, uh, he has been, and you notice that, that Paul lists out co-laborers who have been with him who are no longer with him. He says, Luke is the only one with me. I want you to bring Mark with you when you come. Right? So, so Paul, uh, Timothy is not just uh, Paul's uh, therapy animal. Right? He's not just like, the, I'm really, I've done okay without you, but now I need you. Uh, there are some practical concerns, but there's also some ministry concerns. And you, as, as we walk through this list of Paul's co-workers and where they are, he begins with a guy named Damos in verse 10. And he says, Damos, in love with this present world, has deserted me, and he's gone to Thessalonica. Now, if you, if you want to do some, some further research a little bit later, just jot down Colossians 4.14 and Philemon 24. So Colossians 4.14, Philemon 24. In those two spots, this guy, Damos, is listed with Paul when he's giving those end-of-letter greetings. He says, like, this guy is my co-laborer. He greets you in the name of the Lord. Right? This is a guy who has been with Paul, working with Paul, ministering with Paul, investing life with Paul in the past. But the snapshot of Damas is not as glamorous in Second Timothy 4. He says, at this moment, the same guy who is previously listed for all of these glowing accomplishments or this glowing accompaniment with Paul has now deserted him, gone to a different place, not because of a competing ministry desire or because he's, he's, he's working for the Lord, but because he has fallen in love with the world. Can you imagine? It, it's one thing Paul says, like he, later on he says, when I went to my first hearing, uh, I was all by myself. Nobody else was with me. Nobody saw me. Um, but now he lists there are some people that are with him, some people who are encouraging him. He's talked about Onesiphorus in the past, who's ministered to him, that's brought a care for him. But when you, you hear about a guy like Damas, what it likely does is draws up, when I ask that initial question, have you ever had somebody who disappointed you? We've all had somebody who's disappointed us, but the disappointments probably that hurt the most are the people that are closest to us and the ones of whom we have higher expectations. 
right? Like the people who have come through in the past and then, not, not, not because of circumstance, but because of a choice, they have disappointed you. Like those disappointments hurt just a little bit worse, don't they? And so Paul says he has gone out, not, uh, not because he continues to have eyes for the things that God is doing, but because he's fallen in love with the world. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, John gives this encouragement as he writes his letter about living in a, in a, as, as followers of Jesus in a world that is going sideways this way, that way, and the other way. 1 John two fifteen through 17, he offers the encouragement, he says, or the command, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, it, 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 if you were to read all of 1 John, you would see that John is not expecting you or me or any other follower of Jesus to live a perfect life in Christ. In fact, he says if anybody says that they're perfect in their life in Christ, they're lying. But at the same time, he also gives these encouragements that said, if you are in love with the world and all of its trappings, if that is your heart's desire, if that is your focus in life, he says, red flag warning. Right? If, if your whole focus in life is only what is obtained in this life, the relationships in this life, the possessions of this world, the, whatever else that the world offers for this time, he, he says it's not from the Father, it's, it's, it's coming from somewhere else, but not only that, but in verse 17, it's not going to last. Right? If we're in love with the things that we can just accumulate for ourselves here and now, it's it's folly on the one hand because it doesn't we don't take it with us right we've all heard that you can't take it with you but it's also foolishness because it's not investing in the things that do last it's not investing in those things that do last for eternity it's not lasting in the, it's not tagging into those things that are of the father that do continue to matter so in this in this in this idea of what Demas has followed he he's gone from investing in the things that matter forever and ever and ever, and has gotten caught up. And Paul doesn't tell us what it looks like for Demos. He doesn't tell us what it is that thing that, that Demos fell in love with that has drawn his attention somewhere else. But if you and I are paying attention, one of the things that we would realize is if this is possible for a guy who co-labored with Paul, who invested in the gospel with Paul, who served with the greatest missionary the world has ever known, would it not be possible that we would have fleeting eyes that go after things that sparkle for a temporary period of time and not for things that last? So one of the encouragements for us on the front end would be to be on guard against these things. Recognize what are we in love with? What are the things that we are pouring our lives into? What are the things that we are saying matter for our lives to be invested in? Our, in, in how we live... If someone were just to to watch us for a, a week, twenty four seven, you know, like in like not not like in a um, mental ward type of situation with a padded room, but like but just like you know like saw your life laid out in a, in all of the different ways. At the end of a week, what would they say is important to you? Where would they say that your heart is, this is where your heart lies. This is where your treasure is. I've watched you day in, day out, minute by minute, second by second. This is where your treasure is at. And, and, and beyond that, if they were able to peel back and see the thoughts in your mind and the motivations of your heart, what would they say is the most important thing to you? 
would they see an investment in things that don't necessarily make sense in this life, but are investing in eternity? Or would they see just an investment in a week of what the world has to offer? He continues to say there's, there's some other people who are no longer with him. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, continuing in verse 10, he says, Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia, not the dog, but to a region. And it's unclear for these two, like he's, he's really clear that Demas has deserted him, but these two have just, they've gone to a different place. Titus is, if you just go to the next page in your Bible, Titus is the recipient of the next book of, or the next letter of Paul as it's recorded in Scripture, probably written before Second Timothy. But it's unclear as to whether they were sent out to these regions. Galatia, right, the letter to the Galatian church. Dalmatia is a, another region, probably with churches being started and, and being strengthened. Um, it's not clear whether they, like Damas, have abandoned him or whether they have just gone out to other places of ministry. And then later you'll see that Tychicus, in, in verse 12, Paul has sent him out. He's sending him to Ephesus probably to replace Timothy. So when Timothy comes uh, back, there's somebody to take his place. But it's interesting that if, if Crescens, Titus, and Tychicus are all sent out, Paul is continuing to send people out and is not just concerned with his own comfort by their company. Right? Like he could just accumulate for himself all of the great co-laborers in the gospel for his hour of most desperate need. Like, help me out. But instead, what is he doing? He is continuing to commission people and send them to regions where the gospel was needed. Paul is enduring the tail end. He would mark his whole life in ministry, his whole life in Christ, as a life of suffering. But his, like he's marked, even here, with a concern for the salvation of people and not just for his own comfort. Which is kind of crazy, right? Like If you and I suffer, where does our, our, our focus tend to usually go? Really quick, like tractor beam inward, right? Uh, like yesterday, I was I was washing dishes after the rodeo, and and like miniature pair of tongs, stupidest thing in the world. I was washing it, and I was like, "Hey, I just sliced my finger on that. That was cool." My immediate thought was not, "I wonder how the missionaries in Indonesia are doing." I'm like, oh, my finger is bleeding. I should stop that, right? I mean, that, that's. But you take that on, if, if chronic suffering, chronic hardship, how quickly our focus goes, how do I alleviate this for myself? And then I can be focused on somebody else. And Paul is setting this example that's really modeled in Jesus, who did not avoid suffering, but, but embraced the cross as the means of your salvation and my salvation. Right? For the joy set before him, he endured all things, even death on a cross. Like if there's anybody who could have avoided suffering for the sake of comfort, it would be Jesus. He, he would never have taken on flesh. He would never have dwelt among us. He would never have stooped himself and lowered himself to taking on humanity and living among sinful people, right? Like If there's ever anybody who had the prerogative and the ability to avoid suffering, it's Jesus. So as much as we point to Paul and say Paul suffered well, Paul can suffer well because Jesus has already suffered well before him. And the only reason that you and I could suffer well is not because, well, Paul's really good at suffering. I guess I could suffer like Paul. You and I could suffer because what has Jesus endured for us? Has he already gone through on our behalf? And so then, how does that change my outlook on life? 
The evidence that Paul is sending people out is in verse 11 where he says, Luke alone is with me. Right? Luke is the only co-worker who's with me. Luke is the physician that had been with Paul traveling on most of his missionary journeys. He's the author of the Gospel of Luke, uh, probably um, providing some of Peter's perspective, some of Paul's perspective on who Jesus is. In, in, the, in the written record, Luke compiles maybe the greatest history of, of eyewitnesses in terms of Luke and Acts. Um, he's working with Paul, but now Paul says, I want you to get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. Um, it's interesting, before we get into who Mark is, that Paul has people who are working with him, and he lists those people. He also has people who have dis, uh, disappointed him, deserted him. Some have even mistreated and abused him when he talks about Alexander the coppersmith who did me great harm, uh, and the Lord will pay him for that. Uh, but but the, the source of the coppersmith's great harm is that he opposed strongly the message. And what is the message? How sinful people can be made right with a holy God. There's this guy that it, Timothy will probably encounter on his journey named Alexander the coppersmith. Might be in Troas, might be in Ephesus. But he says, beware of him because he strongly opposed the message. So if he opposes the message, he opposes all of its messengers. But in the midst of that, he says, there is somebody who is useful to me in ministry. While Paul is in prison, he says, there's a guy I want you to bring. It will maybe raise an important question. Who, who is this guy who is useful to Paul for ministry? What's his history as best as we can put it together? So I want you to turn to the book of Acts with me. Starting in Acts chapter 12, we'll just kind of stair-step Acts 12, 13, and 15 just to put this together of who Mark is, keeping in mind the question, has anybody ever disappointed you? So in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, it's the first time that we, outside of the gospel according to Mark, or the gospel attributed to Mark, this is the first place that Mark shows up. Acts 12, verse 12. This is where Peter has been, uh, the, 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 the apostle James has just been killed in the beginning part of chapter 12. And then Peter has been put in prison, and they're planning to put Peter to death too. And this is the account where Peter is in prison, and an angel comes in at night, releases him from prison, right? In Acts 12, verse 12, we realize that we, we find out where Peter went after he was let out of prison. It says when he realized right, that, that it wasn't just a dream, that he was actually just like walked out of prison. It says when he realized this, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Uh, so the first place we see is that, that Mark is part of the early Jerusalem church, probably the first wave of believers in the New Testament, uh, following Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Uh, the church meets uh, in his mother's house. So then it becomes maybe, uh, maybe uh, it wouldn't surprise us if you keep going in Acts chapter 12 and drop down to verse 25, that Barnabas and Saul, so Barnabas goes out, finds Saul, brings him back uh, after uh, Saul, before he becomes Paul. Right, Paul encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road. Then he goes into like a backwater place for a couple of years, and a guy named Barnabas goes later and brings him to Jerusalem. 
At the time that Barnabas brings him to Jerusalem, it says, uh, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So now all of a sudden, Mark has gone from the church's meeting in his home to he is with Paul and Barnabas. Okay, are you tracking with me? You go down to the next chapter, chapter 13, verse 13. Uh, so Paul and Barnabas have been set, a, set apart by the church in Antioch, which is north of Jerusalem, to go on the first missionary journey, right? So the first place where they are going actively to places where the good news of who Jesus is has never been heard, and they are going to the synagogues, and then they're sharing with people who have never heard about what Jesus has done for people. Paul and Barnabas are these first two that are set out, and we find out in chapter 13, verse 13, that Mark is with them. You look at uh, Acts 13, 13 through 14. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. That's a mouthful. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Catch that? John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John, also known as Mark before this. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So Paul and Barnabas are early on their missionary journey. It doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell what the circumstances are. It just says, Mark left them and went home. Lucky for us, we find out uh, in Acts chapter 15 how this made Paul feel. Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41 uh, so Paul and Barnabas finish their first missionary journey. Uh, so they, they, make a, they make a trail through, uh, they don't go all the way into Turkey, but they go into uh, Asia Minor and then they come back. Uh, there's a council in Jerusalem where all of the, uh, the representatives from all of these places that have, have now uh, have people coming to faith in Christ gather together because they're trying to figure out what to do with these non-Jewish background believers, right? So they have this uh, huge discussion. And they say, hey, they can actually receive Jesus just like everybody else. Right after that, Paul and Barnabas prepare to go on another missionary journey, right? So they're getting ready for their second journey. And it says, after some days, Acts 15, starting in verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now notice this next part. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the church. Now imagine this. The first two sent missionaries from the early church, Paul and Barnabas, go on a missionary journey. By all accounts... Successful, right? To the point that they say, let's go back and visit all the places where work has started. But then they hit this obstacle. Barnabas wants to take Mark, who had, doesn't tell us why, other than he had just turned back and went to Jerusalem. And Paul says, uh uh-uh. I'm not taking a quitter. You think that Paul had been disappointed by Mark? I mean, obviously to the point that he says that we're not taking him. And Barnabas, you can imagine this. These two guys stick their feet in the ground and say, I'm not moving. Well, I'm not moving. 
I'm taking Mark. No, you're not. If we had, just, just imagine, if we had a missionary team that was on their furlough, on their stateside assignment, and they said, we are refusing to go back to the same place because we have a disagreement over our team members. Would we look at them and say, that's a really healthy team dynamic? And probably not. Paul and Barnabas have such a sharp disagreement, and I think that's probably an understatement, a sharp disagreement, to the point that they say, we will no longer work with one another. You go this way, I'll go this way. Or we cannot agree to work together because we're split on who we're taking. So Barnabas takes Mark, and Paul takes Silas. And just a, a little, this is just a, Zane's little reflection on this moment. Do you think that when Barnabas and Paul met in heaven for the first time, Barnabas looked at, at him and said, I told you so. <laughs> He's useful, isn't he? You don't know that. That's just my little thought. Like, did it even matter? But Paul obviously saw Mark as, at this point, if a snapshot in time, Acts chapter 15. Does Paul see Mark as useful for the ministry? No. Right? Like maybe some ministry, but not his ministry. At this point, in a snapshot of Acts chapter 15, would Paul say to Timothy, bring Mark to me, he's useful to me? Probably not. And here's what I would say to you. I think one of the things that, that, that comes out of this, a practical question or a practical reality, my snapshot and your snapshot of people is not the only snapshot. In fact, the reality is, is if they belong to the Lord, God's not done with them in the same way he's not done with you. Your snapshot may not look like you. Somebody might have a snapshot of you that is not overwhelmingly glamorous to your life in Christ. That if they were to hear about you now, they say, that person, really? I don't think they're useful to the gospel. Aren't you kind of happy that God doesn't work just off of snapshots? I think about this in light of all of Scripture, or just even in the New Testament, just a handful of, of examples. Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, they come to arrest him. Where did his disciples go? <sighs> Snapshot. How good are Jesus' disciples in that moment? He picked some pretty lousy disciples. You know, they didn't stick with him. They're just gone. One dude, so afraid, he ran away naked. Turns out to be like the guy that Jesus calls the beloved disciple, like the one that like he like yeah gives the revelation to. That tells us like the, the history of, of of redemptive history, the Gospel of John, first, second, third John. J- John ran away. All of them. Well, Peter cut off an ear, and then right after that, what did he do? Denied Jesus three times. Snapshot. How, how good of a disciple is Peter? How much ministry would you entrust to Peter in that snapshot? I wouldn't trust him with maybe a rooster. He might be tired of that thing. Like, has some pent-up aggression towards that guy. But outside of that, like, what would you give to Peter? Paul, 
Like the beginning part of Acts, Paul persecutes the church, right? He, like the snapshot of Paul, people say, wait, isn't this the same guy who is just tracking us down and killing us? And they're at arm's length with him until a guy named Barnabas comes and takes him and says, hey, he's really like the God is working in him. Like, so you really want a Barnabas in your life. Let's just put it that way too. You want somebody who sees God's work in you when nobody else sees it. You want somebody who continues to see beyond just the snapshot of what everybody else sees. Like, and, and maybe this is an encouragement to you. Are you a Barnabas to somebody else? Are you an encourager to push somebody in their relationship with Jesus? To take them where they are to continuing to help them into maturity in the Lord? I guess in a way we all want to be Paul and we don't really want to be Barnabas. We just want to be charging ahead. But, but how many of you have ever been encouraged by somebody? Same question. You have you ever been disappointed by somebody? Have you ever been encouraged by somebody? Somebody who spoke biblical truth to you and encouraged you deeply in your faith. That's, that's an amazing gift, isn't it? And somewhere in between Acts chapter 15, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Mark, and it's probably time with Barnabas, that Mark becomes or is restored in his usefulness to ministry, incorporated back in, given another opportunity. If you, I, I don't think anybody is is. Um, I say this as nicely as possible. I can't think of another word for it. I don't think anybody is ignorant to say they've never been disappointed by somebody. I think we would all agree. Like we're we're pretty transparent. People have disappointed us. That's a pretty easy question. Most of us would probably be able to say we have been disappointed by other followers of Jesus at some point. Most of us could say we, at some point we have probably been hurt by somebody else who follows Jesus. We've been mistreated. We've been abandoned. We've been not not treated right. And going back to the the disciples, Peter, Paul. This picture of Mark, of Damas, this is really important. Get this. There, there are no perfect followers of Jesus. If your hope is in a people who will never disappoint you, can I just save you the trouble? You will be disappointed. You will be let down if your hope is in people. But then underneath that, even as, as we continue in 2 Timothy chapter 4, what we see is that even in light of imperfect people, people who let us down, people who disappoint, people who aggravate, people who frustrate, there is a faithful God who is at work in you, and there's a faithful God who is at work in them. You see this clearly in verses 16 through 18, where Paul says, At my first offense, there was, there was no one. No one came to stand by me. All deserted me. Can you imagine, from a, from a human standpoint, how that feels? Paul, at his most vulnerable moment in terms of like being <laughs> accused by others, is left completely by himself. After pouring his life so that others might know and walk with the Lord. And at this point, he says, when at my first defense, there was nobody with me. And it's not just because they were unavailable, he says, but they all deserted me. But then an incredible uh, 
almost prayer of grace, may it not be charged against them. I think of Jesus' words on the cross, like, right? Like, um, they don't know what they do. Stephen, as he's about to be stoned, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. May it not be charged against them. But then verse 17, this profound truth that undergirds everybody else deserting Paul, people disappointing, frustrating. Uh, and, and we might would say this is also the encouragement to everyone who follows and names the Lord as Savior and follows him in faith. What is true of them when everybody else disappoints or seems to disappoint? But the Lord, or but God, stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Get, get this picture. He's, he's pointing these two things in opposition. When at my first hearing, no one stood with me, but God stood with me. No one strengthened me, but God strengthened me. No one encouraged me, but God encouraged me. And what we see really quickly here is, is, is what God is doing in Paul in this moment when he's all by himself is, is really God's purpose for his people or his promise for his people throughout all of the New Testament. First of all, uh, Paul notes that God was, he stood with him in his presence. So God gives his presence, he stood by me. He gives his provision, he strengthened me. And he gives purpose so that through me the message might be proclaimed. God's presence, his provision, and his purpose. And he goes on, and you can flesh this out even more. He says, uh, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth, right? That's, you throw that under presence or provision. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom, eternal presence. I will be with him. So Paul's not expecting, when we say that God will never let us down, we're not saying that God won't allow us to endure hardship. We're not saying that God won't allow us to face physical death. But what we are saying is that his promise endures and supersedes anything we might face. And this flows right out of Matthew chapter 28. What, what Jesus promised his people as he's preparing for his ascension, right? He's, he's, he's already gone through death, burial, resurrection. He's preparing for his ascension back to the Father. And he commissions the church. And this is, we, hopefully, you've heard this before. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. First of all, he says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. What is that? It's his provision, right? All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What is that? It's purpose. Make disciples everywhere you go, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded. You and I have a purpose for our life, armed with God's provision. And then notice this, the, the very end thing that he says is, is maybe one of the most important things impacting his provision and his purpose. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is that? He promises his presence. And so what Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in the midst of his hardest struggle, he is, is the fleshed out version of, when no one stood with me, he was with me. Presence. When no one else strengthened me, he strengthened me. Provision. So that I might proclaim his name to the Gentiles. So I might make disciples among these people. Purpose. It's fleshed out in Paul's life. 
One of the challenges for you and for me, maybe as we draw to the end of this, is, is I think on an individual level, if, if we have given our lives to the Lord, we're seeking to follow him in faith-filled obedience, that's a really humbling thought, isn't it, that God uses me to do his work. That's an incredibly humbling thought, because I know myself, right? And, and hopefully you like you make this individual for you. There ought to be great humility recognizing that God uses people like you and me to do his work. And at the same time that I have this great humility about his, his desire to use me, there's this tension that I have great frustration, or maybe you have great frustration, that God uses people who disappoint me also for his purpose. So I embrace his grace in using me, and yet I get frustrated at his use of other people who are imperfect. So one of the remedies, in some senses, for disappointment is, first of all, humility recognizing that you and I are capable of the exact same things. You and I are, in some ways, disappointing other people. Uh, If you haven't heard me say it before, hear hear me say it now. If I haven't disappointed you yet as your pastor, I will. If I haven't disappointed you yet as a fellow follower of Jesus, get to know me better and I will disappoint you. In the same way that you could say to any other person, if you, if, you, if you have me on a pedestal and you're expecting perfect following of Jesus out of me, you will be disappointed. Could you say that honestly to somebody? Like, if you were to just follow me, be disappointed. Like, take the win when I do something right, and then please forget all of the times when I get it wrong. But one of the keys to, frust- to, to letting go of frustration and forgiving people who are imperfect is recognizing that God, in his great mercy, is using me as an imperfect person, too. We cannot sit here and expect all of the grace and all of the forgiveness and all of the mercy for ourselves and then withhold it from others who wrong us. Intentionally or unintentionally. That's an incredible, like, it's a mystery that, that I'm sure we would all love to ask Jesus when we get to see him face to face. Why do you use messed up people? But it kind of goes back to, to what I said about an exhausted worship team. Empty vessels of clay are radiating the truth of an immeasurable God. So that all of the good things that are seen in us are, are, are they hopefully are clearly not something that we have produced, but they're the gift of God radiating in us. Like our lives are not meant, like, you know, by all means, pursue a life of faith-filled obedience to Jesus in faith. But at the same time, recognize that your greatest gains for the kingdom will be his work in you and not your work on your own. It will be because by his good grace and pleasure, he has chosen to to just pour grace and mercy into you, and it flows out of you. It's not because you and I are bringing something incredible to the table. We're bringing our brokenness, and he is making it new and, and, and showing the overwhelming character of his grace and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness. 
And as soon as we begin to think that, that our greatest asset to the kingdom is hiding our brokenness and hiding God's work in our midst and just showing you how good I am on my own, we are showing people, we're not giving them hope. We're really just setting them up for disappointment. So may you and I, like, let's lean into this tension. We're not perfect. God is calling us to ongoing faith that is sanctifying, transforming us. But it is his work that is put on display. And we're just conduits of grace. So maybe uh, this morning, one of the things that you need to do, there, maybe there's somebody that you like have been holding on to. They have disappointed me. In light of the grace that God has poured out on you in Jesus, what ought you to do? I'd probably argue that it's probably not to sit and hold on to that disappointment. Not to fester bitterness and hopefully it'll go away. In light of how God has lavished grace and mercy on us, how do we lavish it on others? How are we seeking to, to, to come alongside of those who in a snapshot don't look like they offer much? In a snapshot, neither do you and I. Are we vehicles of God's grace because of his great love he's poured out on us? How is that radiating out of us?